When I was first um, preparing this message, I had intended uh, to call it uh, a day in the life of Jesus. Because uh, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the passage we read, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to verse 39, possibly actually up to verse 45, uh, all it seems take place in a single 24 hours, perhaps 48-hour period. Uh, A lot happens in those verses, but they all happen in one day, or one day and the next morning. And so I wanted uh, to see what is a day in the life, or what was a day in the life of Jesus really like. Uh, But the problem with that uh, was that Uh, I realize that might give a slightly skewed impression uh, because I'm sure that not every day that Jesus spent during his ministry on earth was as busy as this one. Um, Perhaps it was, I don't know, but I doubt it somehow. Uh, This was an especially busy day, but I'm sure uh, not all Christ's days were so busy. Uh, But there's another problem As well. Uh, As I was uh, preparing this message, I realized that all the things, nearly all the things that Jesus does in this one day, are things which are very foreign to our everyday lives. And it's hard for us to relate to the kind of things that Christ does in this passage. He spends his day preaching. Often when we think of preaching, we think of someone standing in a pulpit on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. But that's not the kind of preaching that Jesus was chiefly involved with. He was teaching the people. Uh, Sometimes he did it from a boat. Uh, Sometimes he did it on a mountaintop. Sometimes he did it in a valley. He did it anywhere, it seems. And he did it throughout the day. Uh, He spends his time healing people. You you can't have failed to notice in this passage uh, the amount of times it mentions how he was healing people. And perhaps strangest of all, uh, we read how he casts out evil spirits. And as I say, these things seem very foreign to us. Uh, It's hard for us to really get our heads behind what that really meant for Christ to do these things because it's so different to our own everyday experience. So what I want to do instead is just try to hopefully uh, help us understand better why Jesus filled his day with these things. What is the significance of what Christ is doing in this passage And the first and most important thing to say is that we need to remind ourselves why Mark is writing this gospel. A couple of weeks ago when we introduced this book of Mark, we saw how Mark is seeking to explain to anyone who reads this gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one promised in the Old Testament, the one God promised would come who would save the world. That's how he opens the gospel. 
verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Mark wants everyone to understand this is who Jesus is. And everything he describes Jesus is doing in this chapter, to those who understood and knew the Old Testament, those things which Christ is doing are very meaningful because they would remember prophecies and things written in the Old Testament. Uh, essentially, you can break down what Christ does in this chapter into three things. We've already mentioned them. Uh, he preached the gospel. He preached good news. Uh, he healed the sick, and he cast out demons. And those are three very significant things, mainly because that is exactly what Isaiah, the great prophet of the Old Testament, prophesied that the Messiah would do. Uh, particularly in Isaiah 61. Uh, If you know the book of Isaiah, you'll know that as you get towards the end, uh, Isaiah describes the servant of the Lord, uh, this figure who would come, who would be God's servant. And it's made clear that this is the Messiah, the man who would come to redeem God's people. And in Isaiah 61, the Messiah, as it were, speaks And the Messiah says this in Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's. Could you hear in that little passage, those just four two short verses, you can hear all the things which Christ is doing in Mark chapter 1. He's preaching good tidings to the poor. He's healing the brokenhearted, and he's proclaiming liberty to the captives, and he's releasing those who are bound in prison by demons, by evil spirits. Uh, So anyone coming to Mark's gospel who knew the Old Testament, would immediately see Christ is doing exactly what Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would do. It's unmistakable the significance of Christ's works. And Jesus himself uh, pointed this out on several occasions. If you read Luke's Gospel, uh, he actually goes into the synagogue at Nazareth And he reads out this very passage. He reads out the beginning verses of Isaiah 61. And he opens the book, reads the verses, closes the book, sits down, and then says, Today, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, this is me. This is who I am. Uh, Later on, um, just after when this events, this passage happened, Uh, John the Baptist, who's in prison, we learned about him last week, Uh, he's been put in prison and he sends a message to Jesus. And in the prison, he's starting to doubt whether Jesus is really the one who was to come. And again, Jesus points to the things he's doing. He says, tell John this, I'm preaching good tidings to the poor. I'm healing the sick. I'm casting out demons. 
Do not doubt who I am. So that's the main significance of this chapter. Uh, Mark is showing us who Christ is. He's the one, the promised one, who would come. But it does beg a question. And the question is, what does this mean for us today? Obviously, it means the same thing. It means that we too can know that Christ is the one who was promised, and that is good news in itself. But Christ in this passage, for example, heals the sick. We still get sick today, don't we? We've already mentioned several people on our prayer sheet uh, who are sick. Uh, People are still afflicted by evil spirits Today, we may not talk about it so much in our society, but uh, go to other parts of the world and it's a very significant issue. So what does this chapter mean for those realities? Uh, Christ, when he was on earth, healed the sick. He cast out demons What's he doing today? And in later weeks, we'll look particularly uh, at healing because Christ performs many healings in this book. And so we'll have many examples to look at and see what that means for today. Uh, But for this evening, I just want to focus on um, the strangest part of this passage, at least strangest for us, uh, how Christ has the power to cast out demons, devils, uh, evil spirits. Uh, Because it's a topic that I don't think we talk about a great deal today. It's very much out of fashion. Um, And it's important to be clear on what the Bible does and does not say about these things. Um, Just to set the scene, the Bible makes clear that there are good spirits, and there are evil spirits. Uh, Good spirits include God's angels, those who serve him. But the Bible also speaks of evil spirits. They are angels of God who have rebelled against him. Uh, The most famous, if I can use that word, is of course Satan himself, the devil who is considered the chief uh, of God's enemies, at least uh, in terms of spiritual beings. Uh, But he is not the only enemy of God in the spiritual realm. There are many angels, the Bible says, which followed Satan. And they are active in this world. Um, But as I say, in our society, we tend to kind of ridicule that idea. We think we pass beyond that. It's for an older time. Uh, People used to believe in that sort of thing years ago, but of course we know such things are nonsense today. Uh, But the Bible doesn't agree. Uh, The Bible says that evil spirits are real, and they do have an influence today. Uh, But there are two dangers we need to avoid. (laughs) One danger is the danger of, uh, as we've said, completely ignoring uh, evil spirits because our society does. 
and thinking uh, we've gone beyond that and it's no longer a thing we need to concern ourselves with. That's one danger. Uh, but the other danger is one which Christians can fall into, and people call it uh, demonomania. <laughs> and they start seeing evil spirits under every rock. Uh, behind every tree, there's a devil lurking. And people seem to be casting out devils and demons left, right, and centre. Uh, but that's not right either. We need to put evil spirits in their proper perspective. And uh, that's what I hope to do this evening, uh, because we do need to be careful. Uh, some Christians take great delight in this topic uh, because it kind of adds excitement to their otherwise mundane lives, uh, to think that we can be connected to the spiritual realm. Uh, we can fight evil spirits. Uh, that can somehow give us a kind of feeling of ultimately pride even. Uh, I can tell the devil what to do. I can command the devil this, and I can command the devil that. Uh, Other people uh, like to feel superior to others. Uh, Those poor people over there don't understand what I understand. They don't understand that there are spiritual forces of light and darkness, uh, but I do understand. And again, we can have this feeling of superiority, but the irony is those attitudes are more in keeping with the attitude of demons than the attitude of Christians, of people filled with the Holy Spirit. So we need to keep these things in proportion. So for the rest of our time uh, this evening, I would just like to look at this subject and ultimately see what the solution or what the answer to the power of demons, demonic forces, is. So I'm going to start by just looking at uh, three ways uh, demons, devils, evil spirits, I'm using those words interchangeably, uh, three ways these beings have power in this world. Uh, We'll see how they can influence people, we'll see how they can harm people, and we'll see how they can possess people, basing this from... God's word. Now, so let's look at the first point. Uh, demons can influence people. Uh, evil spirits in this world have the power to influence, influence us in various ways. And there's an easy way to remember uh, the ways in which evil spirits can influence us. Uh, they can influence us through our eyes and through our ears. Uh, They can influence us through our eyes through temptation. And it can influence us through our ears through deception. Those are the two chief ways the devil and his minions can influence us in this world. Through temptation and through deception. Uh, The first one is perhaps the easiest one to show. Um, The Bible, in fact, describes the devil as the tempter. Uh, Nearly every time you see Satan mentioned in the Bible, he is tempting someone or something. That is what Satan does. He is described as the tempter. Uh, He, of course, even tempted Christ himself. Uh, We read that last week uh, in Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. After 
Jesus' baptism, it says, immediately the Spirit drove him, that's Christ, into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. So we say evil spirits tempt. And you might ask, well, is it just Christ they tempt? Well, no. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, uh, the apostle Paul warns, and he gives a warning to these Thessalonians, lest by some means the tempter has tempted you and our labor be in vain. In other words, Paul was very aware of the activity of the devil and his ability to tempt us to sin. And he was so conscious of it that he warned the Thessalonians of it. And there are many other warnings in the Bible as well. And it's really important to understand what this means. Um, Satan cannot make you sin. Okay, that is not possible. Satan cannot make you sin. That's our responsibility. But what Satan can do is put temptations in our path. And then he leaves our hearts, our sinful hearts, to do the rest. And it's important to make that clear for two reasons. Uh, one is because sometimes when we talk about Satan, we can turn him into a kind of a godlike figure. Uh, we can sort of make the mistake that Satan is as powerful as God is. And some people talk of Satan as though he's omniscient, as though he's omnipresent, like he's everywhere all at once. But of course he isn't. Um, Satan cannot hear every single thought you think. Satan is not in every part of the world at all times, because he's not God. He does not have that sort of power. And he has not got the power to enter into you and to force you to do things that you do not want to do. We'll come to possession in just a moment. But Satan instead uses our sinful hearts and he puts things in front of us which lure us away from God. He's like a fisherman who puts things on a fish hook and we snatch at it because of our sinful hearts. But another reason why it's important to emphasize that is because sometimes we can start blaming Satan for things which are really our own fault. Um, some people are keen to talk about things like the spirit of envy and the spirit of lust. And if they just mean the feeling we feel when we do those things, then fair enough. But sometimes people can talk as though it wasn't their fault. Something possessed them and made them feel that way. But we need to be careful not to lose ownership of our own sin and not give Satan more power than he really has. Satan is able to tempt, but he cannot cause us to sin. He can only cause spiritual harm as we give in to the temptation. We need to be aware of the danger of things we look at on the computer screen. We need to be aware of the dangers of things we see on the magazine covers. Uh, we need to be aware of the dangers of listening to things that we should not be listening to and being dragged into things that we should not be dragged into. Those are the kind of things Satan delights to use because he is the tempter. And when we give in to temptation, 
we give Satan a stronger foothold in our lives. That's the deadly danger of it. Like that fisherman with the fish hook, once we give in to temptation, there's the danger of being hooked and being taken captive, which we'll come to again in more detail a little later. That's the first way that Satan and demons can influence us. They put temptation in our way. That's through our eyes, if you like. Uh, But the second way is through our ears, through deception. Uh, And of course, temptation itself is a form of deception. Uh, Satan wraps up sin and makes it look so attractive. Uh, When we give in to sin, we don't give in to sin knowing how wicked and twisted and evil it is. We think it's wonderful in the moment. Uh, In that moment, it looks so wonderful and attractive because Satan is a master of deception. Demons are masters of deception. Uh, Again, Paul warns that Satan can appear like an angel of light. He is a master of making evil things look good. He's the master of making lies sound like truth and making truth sound like lies. That's why we must be like Bereans. You remember the Bereans? Uh, When they listened even to the Apostle Paul, they were commended because they searched the scriptures to see if the things he was saying were true. Because they were aware of the danger of deception Uh, because the devil doesn't appear with a pitchfork and uh, forked tongue and horns that's not how he appears Uh, he appears looking like people like me in a pulpit or someone on the tv screen looking very wonderful speaking wonderful words that's how the devil works they speak through deception So we need to beware what we listen to, and we need to test what we listen to by God's words to see if these things are so. Those are the two chief ways that the devil seeks to influence us through temptation and through deception. But let's move on to the uh, second way, and you'll notice that each of these descriptions of the power that demons have uh, get increasingly more and more uh, serious. We've seen how they can influence people, but we also learn from God's word that they can harm people. They can harm people physically. Uh, We have one example of this in Luke chapter 13, verse 11. And Luke writes, behold, There was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could could in no way raise herself up. Luke speaks there of a spirit of infirmity. And a little bit later, when Christ heals her, the Pharisees are unhappy because he healed her on the Sabbath day, on the Saturday, the Jewish holy day. And Jesus rebuked them back. And he said... I have released someone bound by Satan for, I forget, I think it's 18 18 years, years. And Jesus says, how can you rebuke me when I've released someone who has been bound by Satan Satan 18 years? Uh, That's just one example of someone who was harmed by Satan physically. Uh, There are many more examples, and we've got no time to look at them all. 
but perhaps the most famous example is in the book of Job. You remember how Job, at the beginning, uh, we see this uh, heavenly scene where Satan is speaking to God, and God points to Job, uh, the most righteous man on earth, as he is described. And God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There is none more righteous than he is. And Satan basically accuses Job of only serving God because of the good things God has given to him. And Satan says, if you take away those good things, if you cause bad things to come instead, he'll curse you. And God allows him to afflict Job. Uh, First of all, he takes away his family. Uh, He takes away his flocks and his herds. And eventually he even uh, afflicts Job himself with grievous sores and boils. Uh, So we see that Satan, devils, do have a power to inflict physical harm. But, having said that again, it's important to emphasize that the Bible doesn't teach that all sickness, all disease, all disaster comes from the devil. We saw that even in our own passage here. Uh, Look at verses 32 to 34. Uh, It describes what Christ did in the evening. It says, At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Do you see there's, there's two categories there at least. Uh, you've got those who were demon-possessed, those who were afflicted with demons, and then you have those who were sick. Uh, not everyone who Jesus healed didn't always cast a devil out of them some of them were just sick in other cases they did have an evil spirit and it's just important to make that distinction that just because you are ill (laughs) doesn't mean a demon or a devil is afflicting you Uh, there's all sorts of reasons why we get sick Uh, at the same time we should not exclude that possibility because the bible doesn't um Just another example, you might have noticed in verses 29 to 31, we're told how Christ healed uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who had a fever. But there's no mention of evil spirits. Uh, They were not involved. She simply had a fever, like I'm sure we've all had at some stage or another. Um, Again, sadly, some Christians go uh, a bit... Uh, over the top with this whole thing and they're as I say uh, casting out demons left right and center but that would be a bit like being someone uh, who was brutally mugged uh, perhaps um, earlier in their life and uh, perhaps when you were mugged your, your mugger broke your arm and ever since that point whenever you saw someone with a broken arm you assumed they'd been mugged well of course that's nonsense there's all sorts of reasons why someone might have a broken arm It might be because they were mugged. That's a possibility, but it's by no means the only reason. And so that's the attitude we should have also to evil spirits. They do have the power to inflict harm on people, but not all harm is the result 
of evil spirits. So we've seen uh, that demons, evil spirits, devils, the devil, can influence people through deception and through temptation. We've seen how they can harm people physically. But now we come to the third and perhaps the scariest way demons are active in this world. Uh, We learn that demons can possess people. And again, we read that in our passage, didn't we? Um, In fact, I'll read uh, from verse 21. It says, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And here we have an example of someone who had been possessed by an evil spirit. And this is when demons have the most power over a person. And it's important to make clear that it seems that this doesn't suddenly happen out of nowhere. Uh, Nobody just wakes up in the morning and finds they've been possessed by a devil. That is not how it works. It happens when someone has engaged in dialogue with the devil and they have continued listening to the devil's temptations and his deceptions and they've continued down that path and they've opened the door to him to the extent that he's walked straight in. Uh, Perhaps the clearest example we have of this in the Bible is Judas. Uh, You remember Judas, the disciple of Jesus Christ, how uh, he was a follower of Christ, uh, but John tells us he uh, had his fingers in the bag. He was a thief. Uh, He looked after the money, but he gave in to the temptation that Satan put in his path, and he stole from the bag. And we see as time goes on, he gets further and further away from Christ until eventually we're told during the Last Supper that Christ, um, that the devil entered into him and he betrayed Christ. That's why we should beware giving in to temptation. That's why we should be so careful what we are deceived or what we listen to, that we are not deceived. Any temptation we give into, we're giving a little foothold to the devil. Uh, we're allowing him, as it were, a little toe in the door. It's a very serious thing. That's why I picked that hymn, that second hymn, uh, the necessity to watch and pray. Uh, it's crucial because the devil is active. Now, that might be quite scary. Uh, As you hear that, I hope you are scared to an extent uh, to think that the devil has the power to even possess a person. And we should have a healthy awareness of that reality. But the strange thing is, uh, so many Christians, uh, instead of reading in the Bible 
what the answer is, uh, instead of looking in the Bible to see how we can protect ourselves from the influence and the power of the devil, uh, it seems so many Christians are, are influenced by what the TV screen tells them or what the films tell them. Uh, and they go into all sorts of weird and wonderful things to try and fight off the devil's attacks. Uh, they uh, perhaps look into uh, exorcists and uh, crucifixes and strange uh, words that we have to say. But the Bible speaks of nothing like that. I'm afraid spiritual warfare is much more mundane than that. Uh, it's not half so exciting as the films want to make it out to be. Uh, instead, the Bible is very, very clear. Uh, the solution to the devil's attacks, uh, all the protection we need from the devil's attacks is told us in this chapter. Ultimately, the only protection we need is Christ. Christ is the solution to the power of the devil and his demons. That's the whole point of this chapter in a large degree. It's to show us that Jesus Christ is more powerful than the devil. He is more powerful than the demons. You know, it's what he did to this evil spirit who had possessed this man. Uh, the evil spirit cries out, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? This is verse 24. Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Jesus spoke and he came out because the devils, the demons, have to listen to Christ. They have no authority over him him. So if you're a believer here this morning, or even if you're not, you don't have to train in exorcism. You don't need some special trained exorcist priest or some special incantation to protect yourself from the devil. What you need is Christ. In Christ, Satan has met more than his match. And did you notice what Jesus did? Uh, he obviously commanded evil spirits. He obviously performed healings. But bookended at either end of the passage we just read, he's doing the same thing. Verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then look at the end of the passage. Uh, when Jesus has gone away to a solitary place to pray and everyone comes out to seek him, to find him. And it says in verse 37, when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. The most powerful weapon we have against Satan, in fact, the only weapon we have against Satan, is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, how Jesus came to this world to redeem all who trust in him. So that anyone who repents, turns from their sin and believes in him will be saved. That's all the protection we need from 
the devil. That's even what Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 5, in that famous passage where he gives the armour of the Christian. And he only mentions one weapon in that whole armour. All of it's defensive except for one, which is what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Or you could say the gospel. What God has taught us about who Jesus is and what he has done. If you want a clearer verse, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says this. It says, they overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. That's how they conquered Satan. Through the gospel, through faith in Christ. So if you want to keep yourself safe from the devil's influence, uh, if you want to avoid being tempted and deceived by the devil, the Bible tells you what to do. It says repent and believe. And continue repenting throughout your life. Stop and turn to God. Don't allow the devil to get a foothold in your life. If you're deliberately sinning against God, if there's some... Uh, action in your life where you are consistently turning away from God and turning ultimately to the devil, stop. Turn your back on that way of life and turn to him. That is the only protection we need. And sometimes that's a painful process. Uh, Sometimes our fight with sin is painful. Sometimes it involves prayer and fasting. Uh, Sin can have a tight grip on our lives but it's worth it it's worth the fight it's possible rare but it does happen it's possible you may one day meet someone who is possessed by a devil it does happen in this country Uh, it especially happens in other parts of the world but in those moments again don't think you need a special exorcist Don't think you need to know special words. All you need is to know Christ. And all that person needs is to know Christ. As far as you are able, share with them God's word and pray to Christ to release them because he has an authority that we do not. That's why we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be scared of the devil or any of his servants because Christ is more than a match for them. And that's why I've chosen uh, as our last hymn, a hymn which rejoices in that fact. It's 719. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee and in thy name we go. So we'll stand to sing 719 to close. <laughs>